places. If this is uh, your first time here uh, in our church building at one of our events, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, We hope you'll enjoy your time uh, with us tonight. We normally put on events like this several times a year where we think about some of the bigger questions of life. And so we usually have a guest speaker and uh, a time for Q&A. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. Andrew Satch is joining us, and so he'll be speaking to us. He'll be addressing this question, uh, has science uh, disproved God? So that'll be the first half of this evening, and in the second half, we're going to have a time for for Q&A. So if you have any questions, please do send them in. As you can see there behind me, there's a QR code, so you can scan that code and send in your question, uh, or you can also visit uh, the website, so ahaslides.com slash Ask Andrew. And please note that you can send in questions at any point this evening, so you don't need to wait until we actually get to uh, the Q&A uh, section. You can send them right now or during the talk if, you know, if a question pops into your head. Andrew, if I could please invite you to come up. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's great to have you. Good to be here. Andrew, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you currently do? So I'm a a minister in Greenwich, um, and I teach part-time at a Bible college. And today I've got laryngitis, so I apologize for my squeakier than normal (laughs) voice. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for for not letting us down. Still coming coming here, even with uh, laryngitis. So tonight you're speaking on, has science uh, disproved God? Uh, you've got a science background. Could you, could you tell us what's, what's the most irresponsible thing you've done in the name of science? So when I was a teenager, my stepbrother and I had an explosives factory in our garage, which nowadays is the sort of thing that would have MI5 on your case. But this was in the 1980s, so it was kind of different times. And um, my stepfather was a scientist as well, and he told us about this compound that he'd made when he was a child called nitrogen triiodide. And it's quite easy to make, actually. You just get, I'll tell you how to do it. You get some iodine crystals, you grind them up, you mix them with strong ammonia, household ammonia, and then you filter it. And it makes a paste that is so unstable when it's dry that it explodes on touch. And he used to describe how he'd make some of this and spread it on the windowsill and then wait for the cat And, you know, we just thought this sounded amazing. And we were desperate to make it. But unfortunately, you can't buy iodine in this country because it's a registered poison. So that was a bit annoying. But then my father moved to Singapore. And when I was 18, I went there as well. And it turns out you can buy iodine quite easily in Singapore. Well, at least you could then. So I I did. And I, I was volunteering teaching in a school. And I wanted to show them how fun chemistry was. So I made some of this stuff at the lunch hour. And because I'd never made it before, I made a bit too much of it. And it is very unstable, I'll just say that much. <laughs> so, um, Andrew, t- tonight you're, you're talking on, um, on this, this topic that you've spoken on. You sp- you've spoken on this topic a number of times. Uh, a why, large number of times, yeah. <laughs> why, do you, why do you speak on this topic? Why do you think it's such, a, 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 such an important question to, to address? Um, I mean, I get asked to speak on it just because I have a background in, in science. So I did a PhD on ears about 20 years ago, so if you want to know about that, I can tell you about ears a lot, <laughs> a lot more than you want to know, probably. Um, but you know, because of that, I'm a minister, and I was a, a scientist, and so people ask me to speak on the subject. And I think it's just because it is a hot potato. 
because um, there are some quite vocal atheists who claim that science disproves God. I don't think it does. And so it's a good opportunity to speak into that subject. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much. Over to you. Thanks so much. Um, so I want to begin by a, with a poem that I wrote in my first year at university as an atheist. And you need to understand that I was studying science, not English literature. And so my, my grasp of poetry was quite limited. But I can still remember it, and it goes like this. Some folk seem to find it odd that people grow from tiny cells. Pathetic, those who think of God and still drop coins in wishing wells. There we are. That was my contribution to English literature. But um, as far as I was concerned, it must be that these Christians just didn't understand the basics of science. I mean, short people used to believe that it rained because God had a giant watering can in the sky. But then we came to figure out evaporation and condensation and the water cycle. People used to think that you got ill because of demons and you got better because of miracles. But now we understand about viruses and helper T cells and immunoglobulin and the immune system and so on. So surely nowadays, now we've put man on the moon, now we've sequenced the human genome, it's time to throw off these fanciful sort of superstitious beliefs of a bygone age. And I, so I liken Christians to people who threw some money in a well, made a wish, and honestly thought that tomorrow would turn out differently. Um, about two months after writing that poem, I became a Christian, and my life changed um, very dramatically. And um, I mean, it's a long story, and I won't tell you the whole thing, but basically I met some Christians at university who didn't fit my stereotype of religious people. And I would never have been this rude to their face, but basically I thought that Christians were, um, were gullible hypocrites. I mean, hypocrites because I'd read the scandals in the newspaper, same as the rest of you, and gullible because I'd never heard anyone give me a reason why they should believe in these things. And I met Christians and they were neither of those things. They weren't hypocrites. They, they lived in a very different way, actually, to other people. And it really struck me. They followed the teaching of Jesus in practice. So, for example, there was a guy at university who was quite difficult and quite awkward. And I know how you treat difficult, awkward people. You ostracize them. Uh, you ignore them when you're with them. And then when they leave, then you talk about them. And this is just standard. I mean, I learned this at school. And these Christians didn't do that. So when he was with them, they were patient with him and included him. And when he wasn't there, they spoke well about him. And I thought, this is very strange. Um, so there was a kind of real difference in the way that they behaved. But also, they weren't gullible. They had very well thought out reasons for why they believed what they did. And I'd never heard those before. Some of them much more intelligent than I was. And anyway, at the end of a long um, process of wrestling with it, I became a Christian. And at that, at that point, I became the thing that the modern atheists say that you can't be. I became a both-and person. So um, the, the atheists often tell us that it's got to be either-or. So either you can be scientific and rational and logical, um, or, I mean, if you really want to, then you can be religious and throw away your logic and your rationality and, and take a sort of giant leap in the dark. But surely you cannot be both. You can't be rational and Christian. You can't be a scientist and a Christian. Well, I became a Christian and I was, well, I was a science student, but I continued and completed my degree and then went on to do my PhD in ears. 
Um, it sounds um, glamorous, by the way, but basically this involves sitting in a soundproof room for three years, listening to about 20,000 clicks. And um, do you think that's tough? A friend of mine, was, his brother was doing a PhD in um, chemical engineering sponsored by Hovis, and he spent the entire Christmas holiday one year um, looking at microscope slides of slices of bread and counting the bubbles, literally. So that's, that's, that's the harsh reality of science at the cutting edge. But um, I somehow managed to combine my new faith in Jesus with my scientific understanding. And you know, I, it turns out I was in good company. Um, so you might know some of the great household names of the history of science were also committed Christians. Now we're gonna do this with a bit of audience participation. I'll say a scientist, and you have to say what um, he is famous for, he or she is famous for. So um, let's start with an easy one. Um, Isaac Newton. Gravity. Okay, gravity. Um, uh, harder one, Charles Babbage. Yeah, if you've been to see his, that mechanical computer in um, the Science Museum, Difference Engine number two, it's pretty amazing. First mechanical computer, um, Louis Pasteur. Yeah, pasteurization, thank you. Somebody um, said he invented bacteria, but no, he discovered bacteria, <laughs> um, uh, pasteurization. Um, what about James Clark Maxwell? Electromagnetism, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, uh, Robert Boyle. Boyle's Laws, yeah, painful, painful memory for those of us who did chemistry A-level. Yeah, all of these people, Johannes Kepler, the astronomer, all of these people, um, leading scientists of their day, and also believers in, in God, uh, Christians. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's just because they lived in that bygone age when everyone was a, was a believer in God. But according to the um, historian of science, Sir Alfred North Whitehead, there's actually more of a connection than that. He, he suggests that it's because people believed in a lawgiver, a divine intelligence behind the world, a God who'd made the world, that they went looking for law in nature. Um, we, we became scientific because we thought that this was an orderly world put together by a divine intelligence. And he questions whether had people back in the 16th, 17th centuries at the dawn of science, had they believed what many people today believe, that the world is just random, a product of blind chance, it's questionable whether they would have gone to such lengths trying to understand random, yeah, that they expected to be able to, to quote one scientist, think God's thoughts after him, to, put, to look at the world that they believed had been fearfully and wonderfully made. So um, yeah, the science, arguably, it flourished in the West, actually because of a Christian worldview. But you might say, okay, but that's a long time ago. What about now? You know, we, we've, we've developed a long way in science, um, Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, you know, um, nanotechnology and, and so on. What about nowadays? Well, um, the first Sunday that I went to church in Cambridge as a, as a new Christian, I sat next to somebody with a professorial-looking beard. And sure enough, it was a professor. I mean, the chances are quite high in Cambridge because it's basically a village with a university in it. And there's not much else to do there but, but work for the university. But this guy, turned out, was um, Professor Bob White, the professor of geophysics at Cambridge University. Um, meanwhile, my next-door neighbour in college was being supervised in geology by Professor Simon Conway Morris, the paleontologist, who it turned out was also a Christian. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because people tell you that you can't believe in the Bible because of the fossils. And yet here are the 
two of the leading geologists in the world who know quite a lot more about fossils than most people, and yet somehow they can combine it with the belief in Jesus. Now, why is that? Or people say, well, you can't believe in, um, in the Bible because of evolution. One of my very best friends is currently the professor of evolutionary genomics at Queen Mary University. In fact, I was on the phone to him this morning. And he's a Christian, um, was a member of the same church as me some years ago. So it, it just seems that there are too many both-and people. Of course, of course, there are atheists who are scientists, obviously, and some of them you know well. But there are also Christians who are scientists. It doesn't seem to be a simple either-or thing. And I want to suggest that is actually because there is no conflict between science and the teachings of the Bible that I know of. And I genuinely mean that. There is no conflict between science and the beliefs of, and teachings of Jesus Christ. As long as you define science objectively, I mean, it is possible to define science so that the only explanations that you count as scientific are atheistic. But then you've just sort of smuggled in your conclusion at the, at the start of the experiment. I mean, what, what is science objectively? Science, science is just a method by which you observe the world, you formulate a hypothesis to describe what you observe, and then you do experiments to test that hypothesis. Now, there's nothing about that method that means you have to be an atheist to use it. In fact, the first people who used the method weren't atheists, and many people today who use the method aren't atheists. In fact, you don't even have to distinguish when you publish a scientific paper the belief system of the scientists who did it, because it doesn't really matter. You know, Hindu scientists and Muslim scientists and atheist scientists and Christian scientists, we're all just using the same method the same way. The, the method is not intrinsically unchristian. Un Nor do I know anything discovered by that method, which is in contradiction with the teaching of the Bible. Though you can ask me about that later. I suggest that the conflict there does not exist. But there's obviously a conflict somewhere, right? Otherwise, why is this a sexy subject? And why have you turned out this evening to hear about it? Well, I want to suggest actually it's because there's a conflict between two different belief systems, two different worldviews that often go head to head. And science is trapped somewhere in the middle. And often one side claims science for their own. But there really is a conflict between the worldview um, of naturalism or atheism on the one hand and Christianity on the other. Now, someone like Richard Dawkins would get pretty upset probably at me calling his um, view a belief system. Because yeah, he wants to say, no, no, I just believe in science. And I want to say, no, you don't. Right? Science is the experiments that we do and the things that we discover by experiments. And then there's the whole philosophy into which you plug your results. And you've got a very different philosophy than I have. So what I want to do in the time that we've got is to outline these two different worldviews, these two different philosophies. And of course there are others. I'm not going to go into Hinduism or Islam um, or Buddhism or whatever tonight. I'm just going to talk about these two because these are often the two that go head to head when it comes to science and faith. You can ask me about others later if you want. But briefly then, atheism is the philosophy that says that matter and chance are all that there is. So in the words of Carl Sagan, the American cosmologists, um, uh, the cosmos is all that there ever was or is or ever shall be. And he's parroting deliberately the Bible's claim that God was and is and ever shall be. And he says, no, the cosmos, you know, 
that the universe, that's all that there is. There's no God beyond it. There's just the atoms that make up all of the stars and planets and, and comets and so on of the, of the universe. Or um, Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher, he once said that mankind is nothing but a chance collocation of atoms on a minor speck of interstellar dust. Um, he puts it well, doesn't he? But um, as a scientist, I, I agree with him that we are made of atoms, and I agree with him that the Earth is a relatively insignificant planet. You know, it's a small planet in an average system in a vast galaxy. It's one of millions of galaxies. But for Bertrand Russell, the key words are nothing but. That's all that we are. We can be reduced to that. There's nothing beyond our atomic um, structure. Or um, in the words of the Nobel laureate, Francis Crick, who got the Nobel Prize for determining the double helix structure of DNA, and he went on to do neuroscience later in his life. He says in his book, The Astonishing Hypothesis, that you, except he puts it in inverted commas because he's not sure how much the concept of being a person actually really makes sense, but apparently the apparent you, your joys and sorrows, your hopes and fears, your sense of personal ambition and free will, are in fact, he says, no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Well, I did research in neuroscience and I agree with him that your thoughts are bound up with the, the movement of electrons in your brain. But I don't agree with him that you can be reduced to that. You are no more than that. But that, that's the atheist philosophy. We're, we're only matter. We're only material things. And that really is at odds with the teaching of the Bible. And um, rather than me giving you sort of my own version of um, Christianity, I thought I'd give you an excerpt from the Bible itself. And it's actually a speech, some of you might know it if you're, if you're used to um, uh, some of the teachings of the New Testament, but it's a speech that the Apostle Paul gave in Athens in the first century. And Athens was like the kind of first century Harvard, you know, it's where people, the cleverest people hang out to talk about the latest ideas. And we're told in particular that Paul got speaking to some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And the Epicureans believed that world, the world was basically due to chance and that there was no survival beyond death. So they, but they believed something a little bit like modern-day atheists. And this is how Paul explains the Christian message in contrast to what they believe. He says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, I'll look at a bit more of the speech in a moment, but I wonder if you can see just from those first two sentences that in some ways, atheism, naturalism, and Christianity are actually the opposite of each other. They're exact opposites. Because if you said to an atheist like Richard Dawkins, does God exist? He would say, no. Or actually, he'd say, probably not, which is, I think, just a more sophisticated way of saying no. But if you said to him, does Christianity exist? He'd say, well, obviously. You know, I'm not ignorant about this worldwide phenomenon where you know, a billion people believe in this guy, Jesus Christ. Oh, well, Richard Dawkins, can you tell us where Christianity came from? Well, yeah, of course. I mean... People made it up, he'd say. So for Richard Dawkins, random chance 
produces human beings, produces human brains, just by an accident, and then human brains, human imaginations, produce God. So chance creates us, we create God. And Paul says it's exactly the opposite way around to that. There is a God and he creates us. It starts with him and then us. And these are very different views of the world. And then we come to science. Remember just a methodology that we can all use. And I think we need to now do what a responsible scientist would do and say which one of these theories makes most sense of the evidence of the facts. And I'm going to compare them in three ways and then I'm going to stop talking and you can ask questions. Okay, so um, three, three comparisons. Firstly, which view makes more sense of design? Now, this is a very contentious word because, of course, not everybody thinks that the world was designed. Although everyone does at least admit that the world has the appearance of design. Um, so, uh, one astronomer um, said that the idea of random chance coming up with the universe that we see before us now yeah, seems to him um, astonishingly unlikely. And it was a little bit like um, positing that a whirlwind passed through a junkyard and left behind a fully assembled functional 747 aircraft. I mean, you know, it's theoretically possible that all the different bits of junk just by chance have blown themselves into an aeroplane that you could start up and fly to America. But that just doesn't really intuitively seem like the most likely explanation for it. And similarly, if you look at a, you know, here's somebody in a room um, and my brain is formulating words which are being transmitted to you through my, the movement of my tongue and my lips on compressions of air that are being picked up by your ears. You see, I knew I'd get an opportunity to speak about ears somehow. Um, that is then transforming them across the basilar membrane into a whole series of different frequency-coded action potentials, which are then decoded by your auditory cortex, and then you understand what I mean, and then you're engaging with those ideas. That doesn't seem like a very accidental thing, right? It's astonishingly complex. But for the atheists, they've got a lot of explaining to do, and they, they think they've done the explaining just with the, um, the use of one word, um, evolution. So here is um, a quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, which was required reading for me when I went up to university. Um, and I lapped it up because at that stage I was an atheist. He says this, design, again inverted commas, atheist like inverted commas, design is only apparent. We have a mechanism to account for it. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process, which we now know is the explanation for the existence of and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind, no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is that of the blind watchmaker, hence the title of his book. In other words, um, design is just a kind of trick that evolution's played on you. It's actually all, all an accident, but it just doesn't seem like it's an accident. Now, I want to take issue with that because even if, I'm not going to particularly go into the ins and outs of evolution, and you can ask me again if you want to later, but even if you accept that natural selection is all that is needed to go from a single-celled ancestor billions of years ago to a self-conscious human being capable of understanding this talk, which is worth saying goes f way further 
than anything that's been demonstrated in the laboratory. But even if you accept that, you've still got a problem. Because even to get natural selection started, to get evolution started, you first have to have an information-carrying, self-replicating molecule like DNA or RNA. You have to be able to copy genetic information to your children or to your bacteria's children or whatever. That's, that's the basic requirement to have evolution. But that's quite a big requirement because actually DNA is one of the most complex molecules known to chemistry. So where did the DNA come from? And where did the information come from on that DNA, the kind of computer program, the software on which all living things are, are, are based? Where did you get the, comf the computer program to build even the simplest self-replicating cell, which is astonishingly complex. You have to get that before you can even have any evolution. Where did that come from? And actually, then your problems only get bigger because you also then have to have a universe for the DNA to exist in. And where did that come from? Um, there's a, a, a great um, own goal caused by the Big Bang Theory. If I, if I were to ask you whose side is the Big Bang Theory on, maybe you think it's on the atheist side, and I want to say no. The Big Bang Theory is really on the Christian side. Because people used to think that the universe was eternal. It had always been here. And if the universe has already been, always been here, you don't have to explain why it's here. It's, just, it's here because it was here. And it was here because it was here before that. I mean, it's, just always, it's just always been here. It doesn't, doesn't require an explanation. But if as scientists now believe, and actually as the Bible teaches, there didn't used to be a universe, and now there is one. In other words, the universe had a beginning, it had a big bang. Then the question comes, well, what made the big bang go bang? It's got to have some kind of cause to it. Things don't just happen without a cause. And the cause of the universe has got to be beyond the universe, because there didn't used to be a universe. So we, we need to find someone or something outside of the universe to explain why it's here. And the Christian says, well, yeah, we've thought that for a long time, and um, his name is God. So actually, to, to even have a universe, let alone to have DNA, let alone to have um, self-aware human beings um, sitting in a room in Banstead, it's very difficult to explain why this happened just by chance. It's not a very good explanation. And the Christian says, well, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You know, the reason that we are personal is because we are created by a personal God. The reason that the world is ordered is because it was created by an ordered God. The, the reason the world is here at all is, is it because it was created by a God who was here before time and who is eternal, and he said, let there be light. So design, to my mind, the evidence of design, it favours the Christian view. Um, if you're into numbers, another little quirky argument is um, the so-called fine-tuning of the universe. So the cosmologists calculate that for the, the universe, of the kind that we live in, to, to exist, various of the physical constants underlying the universe have to be exactly right. Um, uh, my favourite example is that the speed of expansion at the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang Theory. And a guy called Alan Guth, he's not a Christian, he's just a mainstream physicist, he calculates that the, 
the ratio of the expansion and contraction forces acting just after the Big Bang has to be correct within one part in 10 to the 55, um, which is one in 10 with 55 zeros on it. If the universe expanded too quickly, then all you would have is hydrogen atoms. No stars, no planets, no human beings, just gas. Uh, if the universe expanded too slowly, then gravity would overwhelm it, so that you'd get a big bang, and then it gets sucked back in on itself in a big crunch, and you'd have a universe, and then no universe, even before you got one millisecond on your stopwatch. To have a universe that lasts for longer than a nanosecond, that has stuff in it other than gas, you've got to get the expansion rate correct within one point in 10 to the 55. And if you want an analogy for that number, take a continent the size of America, cover it with five penny pieces, tessellated, you know, all lined up against each other, stack them to um, a height of 380,000 kilometers, which is the distance between here and the moon, um, do the same for a thousand, thousand other continents the same size, paint one of the five penny pieces red with nail varnish, blindfold your partner, get him or her to pick one at random, and that is about the chances. In other words, it just isn't very likely to be here by chance. It makes a lot more sense that someone picked the numbers and designed. Much more briefly, secondly, which one makes most sense of human life? Now, I'm not arguing at this point that Christianity must be true because it's nicer, although it is nicer, much nicer. Um, I just want to question the sort of atheist who is comfortable in his or her position and yet doesn't live by it. And one of the things that used to bother me about religious people was hypocrisy, as I've already said. And if you hate hypocrisy, then you're in good company because Jesus couldn't stand it. He was always falling out with religious people who were hypocrites. But I'd never noticed as an atheist that I was also being a hypocrite because I was saying I believed one thing and I wasn't living by it. Um, a man called John Gray, who um, apparently used to be Tony Blair's favourite philosopher, I don't know if that commends him to you, but professor of um, European thought at the LSE. Um, he said that we must accept that our existence is entirely accidental. And we live um, in, a f in a strange world that is as indifferent to our hopes as it is to our sufferings and our crimes. It's quite a profound point, because he's saying, if the world is just here by chance, then random numbers don't care. They don't care about your aspirations. They don't care about your sufferings. They, it's just a random number. You, you don't get... I mean, I know there's problems if you think there's a God. There's big questions about suffering. But if you don't think there's a God, you can't even ask the question. Who are you, who are you asking? Dear random numbers, why is my life so hard? I mean, what kind of answer are you expecting from random numbers? And indifferent to your crimes. I remember when I was doing my PhD, I used to get teased for being the religious guy. And, you know, in a, in ma mainly in a sort of bantery kind of fun way. But one of the professors called Kate was giving me a hard time one day. And I said, and I emphasised this was in the spirit of banter, although I realised with hindsight it sounds quite chilling. But it wasn't. We were friends. I was smiling. Okay. I said to her, Kate, if you're right, I shudder even to say this now, but um, if you're right, why would killing you be wrong? Okay, I wasn't about to do this, but um, why would it be any different to cutting a grapefruit in half for my breakfast? Because all I'd be doing in both cases is just rearranging the atoms of the universe in a slightly different way. Kate atoms, grapefruit atoms, I mean the same kind of proportion of carbon and so on, pretty much. 
what's the difference? And she, th- she thought about it for a minute, and she said, well, the difference is my mother would be upset. <laughs> and, and fair answer. And I said, yeah, but Kate, what is upset? Upset is just the decrease of the concentration of serotonin, the neurotransmitter, in the randomly assembled collection of atoms, which is your mother's brain. <laughs> now, I mean, Kate didn't, the point is she didn't think that. She's a very nice person. I go, she was very kind to me. But she had a philosophy that says it doesn't matter and then lived as though it does. And I, I think that, that should make you uneasy if you, if you can't live by the things that you say that you think. Um, much more reasonable, I think, to, to believe that good and evil are, are somehow real. There must be something moral about the universe beyond just its material fabric. As if human beings are precious somehow. There must be something valuable about a human being beyond just its biology. And all of those things make sense if, if you have the Christian view of the world. Paul goes on to say that God made all the nations of mankind that they should inhabit the whole earth. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Now this is, I remember when I first came across this concept, I found it just extraordinary. Because I, I thought that God, if he existed, was some kind of equation, you know, or some kind of first principle or whatever. But I read in the Bible about a God who was actually personal. In fact, that, the Bible says that's why we're personal, because we're made in the image of a personal God. He's relational. And he actually wants us to know him. Not just an equation, but a, a personal God who desires a relationship with us. But at that point, you think, well, I'm a bit stuck now, because how could you get to know a God who is beyond time and space? even if you wanted to. Now at this point, I want to say, this is my, my final point, but I want to say that um, science, even though it is powerful, cannot tell you everything that is important. I'll say that again. Science is very powerful, but it cannot tell you everything that's important. I was once at an event with the atheist professor, Peter Atkins, where he suggested from the podium that a rational person shouldn't accept anything as true that wasn't proved by science. And rather cheekily, I put up my hand to ask a question and said, Professor Atkins, can you confirm that you were on the podium a moment ago and that you said that we shouldn't accept that anything's true except it could be proved by science? And he said, yeah, I, that's what I said. And I said, I'm, I'm afraid I'm unable to verify that scientifically. I mean, we, can all, we all remember that you said that, but we can't do an experiment to find that you said that. Um, uh, yeah, of course, there's other ways of knowing things, you know, being eyewitnesses to an event. Um, here and so on. But um, science is, is kind of limited, particularly when it comes to getting to know people. So imagine you wanted to get to know me and all you had to go on was what you could find out by scientific experiments. You know, I, I present myself to you for your, for your tests. What, what could you find out? Well, you could do gas chromatography under my armpit <laughs> and you could tell me what deodorant I'm wearing and whether it's enough to cope with this slightly stressful situation I find myself in now. You could do DNA fingerprinting and tell me if I'm on the Interpol wanted list or whether I'm likely to die young from any known genetic illness, which I am, because my father and my grandfather both had heart attacks in their 50s. Um, Okay, you could find out some things like that, but that's about all you could tell. 
so you wouldn't be able to find out my name. And, and you wouldn't be able to find out almost anything of importance to me as a person, you know, what I love and what I would give my life for, what makes me happy. You, you just couldn't access those things about me, which is why if you're in a relationship this evening, I very much doubt that on your first date, you said, please can I take a small scratching of cells on the inside of your cheek? And I'll run some tests and I'll be back with an answer in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's just, science is powerful, right? But it can't tell you everything about a person. You've got to meet them and encounter them and speak with them. Well, if that's true just of getting to know me, how much more when it comes to get to know God? I mean, how, how could you even exclude him from your apparatus to take a null reading as a control? But the Bible says amazingly that God wanted to get to know us. And so he stepped into the world that he'd made in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul ends his speech. He says, we shouldn't anymore think of God as an image made by human design or skill. As if we came up with the idea of God. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to change their minds. Because he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he's appointed He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I was so surprised, I tell you, to find a word like proof in the Bible. Because I thought, like Richard Dawkins says, that you know, science is about proof, or atheism is about proof, and Christians are about believing credulous things because they love to take leaps in the dark. To, to, find, a, to find the Bible appealing to evidence for something. And of course, the resurrection is very good evidence, isn't it? Now, I think when it comes to discussing the resurrection, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, his more recent book, um, it's quite telling because he says the resurrection cannot have happened being by its very nature a contradiction of the laws of science. And so then he dismisses it. But actually, that isn't how science works. You don't look at the awkward bit of data that doesn't fit and throw out the data you look at the awkward bit of data that doesn't fit and then you revise your theory. And that's how almost every scientific progress has been made. And if there was a resurrection, then you've got to throw out the theory of atheism. It can't explain it. A world that is only material, you know, someone who's killed cannot get back again three days later. But if there's a God who made the whole thing, I imagine it's pretty easy for him to do a resurrection um, after doing the Big Bang and everything else. So this is evidence that would cause you, I think, to revise. And as um, Paul says to the Athenians, he says it's time to change your mind about God because he's given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Um, I think I've gone over my time, and thank you for listening. I'm going to hand over to Daniel, and he'll tell us what happens next. Thank you. thing actually work. <laughs> there we go. There we go. It's not rock and science, is it? <laughs> no, Andrew, you are a scientist, so look at that. Nailed it. First attempt. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much. Um, 
folks, as you know, you can send in your questions. Uh, I believe we should get a QR code behind us very shortly. Andrew, is there anything you'd say to, um, just before we get into, this is a question I have. Uh, You've challenged the atheistic worldview tonight. I was thinking, there are a lot of people who would say they're not atheists and they're not Christians. They say they're somewhere in the middle. Uh, They're agnostic. Um, A lot of people. I think it seems like when I chat with people who, who do claim to be agnostic, I get the sense that they think, I don't know how to put it, but like the, what they've chosen to be or the, the worldview they've chosen is the most sensible one. Um, you, you can't prove you know, that God exists. You can't prove that it doesn't exist. So standing in the middle, yeah, what would you say? Is there anything you'd, you'd um, say to that? Yeah, when they, you set me up. I don't know if it's deliberate, but so a friend and I have just written a book called Are You 100% Sure You Want to Be Agnostic? Um, I have no idea. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this question because I, th- I think it is actually where most of my friends are at, and yeah, somewhere in between. Um, uh, and I, I could say a lot about it. It'd be a, um, another evening, but cause, I mean, briefly, <laughs> I, I actually—I yeah, try to be brief. Um, the word agnostic just means I don't know, and the first thing I'd say to you, if you don't know, is find out. As in, don't assume you're agnostic just because without doing any investigation. You know, I, I could say I'm agnostic about how many helium balloons it would take to send my mum into space, which is true. I, I don't know, but I could find out. It's, it's an easy enough experiment. There's, there's things about the world that you don't know, but you could investigate. And if you're agnostic about God because you've never looked into it, I'd say start by looking into it. Um, there can be the kind of agnostic that is just actually trying to avoid answers, so I'm just scared of where it might lead. And I can relate to this because when I was at university, I didn't want Christianity to be true because I thought it might wreck my life. You know, if Christianity had a colour, it would be grey. If Christian ethics could be summarised in a word, it would be don't. Um, you know, being a Christian involves ill-advised fashion choices. Um, it involves slur, which one of my friends, de- <laughs> one of my friends described as Christian champagne. <laughs> um, and you know, I'm, I'm being silly, but you know, but you think oh, I don't want that, and so maybe I don't know. It's just a way of keeping religious people at arm's length, so I don't have to be forced into awkward decisions. So maybe, maybe it's that. And I think you know, once you discover, I think as a as a Christian knows that knowing Jesus is actually great, it's actually really good news, and not just in terms of the hope of eternal life that He offers us, but even in terms of knowing now the God who made us and calling Him my Heavenly Father. That's really, really good. So to sort of to sit on the fence out of fear of it, I'd say, no, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is excellent. Um, and then finally, I just say, I think it's quite dangerous to be agnostic. And the, the analogy I would give is, imagine you go to the doctor and they say, oh, I'm afraid it's bad news. You've got a tumour. But if we operate um, immediately um, and then give you some radiotherapy, you've got quite a good chance of survival. And you think, I don't like the idea of surgery and I'm not sure it's right. And you um, go to an alternative doctor, you go to an alternative medicine practitioner, and they say, no, you're fine, you just need some homeopathy. And you've got to make a decision. You go, I'm not really sure. So, you know, the idea of going for surgery seems a bit extreme, and, but homeopathy, is it really enough? And you sort of vacillate, and, and you miss the medical appointments, and you don't turn up at the hospital, and you're still trying to decide. You're, some, you're kind of, I don't know, you're on the fence. 
But of course, actually, that is the same as deciding that the doctors are lying. You haven't explicitly rejected the medical advice, but you've just done nothing about it, and it comes down to the same thing. So if Jesus comes to us and says that the world's got a problem, and um, you need treatment, you, know, you need um, help, you need a rescue from, from Jesus, and you say, oh, I'm not sure, and I'll sort of delay um, taking that on board or thinking seriously about it, it actually ends up in the same place as you rejecting it. So I think agnosticism, it ends up being just rejection by a long-winded route. Mm. And we can't, you know, we have to make a decision ultimately. And that, that's what Paul says to the Athenians. We've got to, God's commanded us to change our minds. Thanks, Andrew. That's, really that's long-winded. No, that's really helpful. When's the book coming out, by the way? Um, hopefully January. Cool. Uh, okay, so we've got a few questions here. Thanks, folks, for sending them in. Uh, let's start with this one on evolution. Uh, does evolution negate the idea of humanity being made in God's image? Does evolution negate the idea of humanity being made in God's image? Yeah, thank you. I mean, the thing about evolution is it's just, it's a slippery term. We just decide exactly what we mean about it. So um, scientifically, evolution is just defined as the change in allele frequency in a population over time, which just means that if you track a population of people, let's say you take um, the people of Bounstead and you look at them over three generations and you find out in the third generation, there were more bald people than there were in the first generation. So the, the genetic marker for baldness has increased. That is evolution, right? That's just, that's just how it's defined. Now, that, that clearly happens. You, know, you do get evolution of populations. So I, I don't think Christians need to be scared of that word. It's just an it's observable thing. But to go much further, and what the atheist is trying to do is say, okay, but the process of natural selection, the survival of the fittest is sufficient to explain all biological complexity. That, I mean, you're going quite a lot further. I mean, I can, I can witness the drifting characteristics over time in a population. You know, you, you discover that if you take some black moths and put them in a white landscape, they get eaten pretty quickly, and white moths survive longer, and so the population drifts towards the white moths. I mean, that's natural selection. But to say that means I can explain the existence of a moth, getting quite a lot further. So I, I would say I accept evolution. I think everyone should accept evolution defined tightly. I don't accept that this process is all that is required to produce biological life. So that, that's, that's just an important distinction. Um, and then in terms of human beings, yeah, you're right. I mean, I suppose the, the mainstream atheist view is that human beings have come about entirely by, um, you know, a purpose of purposeless change that took us back to um, hominid ancestors and beyond that to sort of ape-like ancestors and beyond that to fish and whatever. And God's not involved in that. And so it's very difficult to square that with what the Bible says that where it says that God, that God was deliberate in making human beings with a special dignity because they're made in his image. See, I think, I think the purposeless random explanation of the world is at odds with what the Bible says. And I think it does undermine the dignity of human beings. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Andrew. There's a couple of questions here, a couple more questions on evolution. And so maybe you've already partly answered them, but if there's anything you want to add to, um, to them, just feel free to. Uh, so what are the differences between a macro and micro evolution? This is one question. What are, uh, but there's a, there's a series of questions within this question. So what are the differences between macro and micro? Uh, what does the Bible say about them? Uh, can Christians accept both, one, or neither? Yeah, so 
um, microevolution is what I'm saying, like the populations um, adapt to their environment, which is true, and macroevolution is the attempt to make that theory do all of the work of explaining um, why things are here, which I personally don't accept. Um, so, I mean, if you like, you know, genes are like switches. You have lots of switches in your DNA. You can turn on and off. So a famous one would be there's a gene that determines whether you have an arm or not. And the tragedy of the thalidomide babies was that this was a chemical that turned off that gene. And so you have people born with hands but with no arms. So that, you know, hands coming out of their, um, of their elbows because you can turn off that gene. So um, I think evolution often does that. You can, there's characteristics, there's a gene for having lush hair, which obviously has been turned off <laughs> in, in, my, in my case, um, and, and so on. So um, it's easy to imagine how a, a species can adapt to its environment by turning off and off these switches. It's quite a different thing to say this process is enough to create those switches. And I think that's what the, the, that's what the Darwinist atheist is trying to do. So they're saying this evolutionary process is enough to create Whereas I, I would say, no, it's a, it's a mechanism by which a created thing can adapt to its environment, and they're quite different. Thank you. Um, final question on evolution, uh, or, or related to evolution. How do we hold together the timing of the Bible versus, uh, timing of the Bible versus fossil records? So how do we hold together the timing of the Bible versus uh, things like fossil records? Yeah, um, so there's two parts of this question. There's an easy bit and a hard bit. Well, I think it, to my mind, there's an easy bit and a hard bit. Um, the easy bit is just the idea that the world is um, more than six, 7,000 years old. Um, because some Christians say that because in Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world in six days, and then he, has, um, he rests on the seventh day, so it makes up a whole week. That means that the world was created in six times 24 hours. And then you sort of trace back and you discover it wasn't very long ago. So um, that's sometimes known as a young earth position. And um, some Christians hold that. Um, and you know, sincerely, I don't personally hold that. But that puts you at odds with the mainstream scientific consensus. So you end up saying the fossil records got the wrong dates. Uh, they didn't take account of Noah's flood properly carbon dating's got some problems with it, and so on. So you end up saying there's, there's reasons to, to disagree with science, with ages that science puts on things. Um, the other view is to say, well, maybe um, the, these days of creation aren't so much 24-hour periods, but it's more like an analogy saying this is what a working week looked like for God. Yeah, so on Monday, the sun he made, and um, on Tuesday he made, and so on. Um, and um, th yeah, there's, there's different arguments about that. But for example, the sun isn't made until day four. So God makes light on day one, makes the sun on day four. And you think, well, what is a day except for the earth rotating on its axis relative to the position of a sun? So you know, maybe a day before there's a sun, is, you know, even that is a sort of poetical figurative concept. So some people think maybe it's the kind of poetic nature to it. And so it isn't necessarily telling us about the time period. Um, and I, that's sometimes known as the old earth position, and some Christians hold that. Now, the Christians, probably in this room, Christians might have both of those views. And so I'd say to you, if you're a skeptic, don't tie the Christian position to one or the other, because Christians differ about it. Um, but the second group of Christians would say, 
um, yeah, we've now got dates that fit with the scientific community because it just yeah, God took a long time over it, but it's pictured as a week. Um, I think the much the, the harder thing is um, the date of human beings. I think it's quite clear in the Bible that we we come from one man, um, Adam, and and Eve, his wife. And we're all descended from a common ancestor. And I, for various reasons, I think the Bible's very clear on that. And I think that does, you know, that does create tensions with some current scientific thought. Um, it's worth saying, what this, this friend of mine I mentioned, he's the professor of evolution. He's done some work on this to show that the idea of a single Adam is actually not genetically implausible. So the, the genetics fits with that. But it certainly isn't the consensus at the moment in science. So I think that's a harder question. Mm. Thank you. Uh, here's a question on aliens. Uh, if, if aliens were discovered, is there room for this in Christianity? Uh, if so, does this mean that the Bible covers more than just the earth, or could they, have their own, could they have their own Bible and stories of Jesus? So if aliens were discovered, is there room for this in Christianity? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about aliens particularly, so in that sense, I don't know. Um, but it's a, my analogy for the slightly less wacky than aliens is those creatures that we've recently found by sending submarines down 10 kilometers into the Marianas Trench or whatever. And there's these funny animals with like you know, eyes on stalks and stuff like that. And you think, why is that there? And I just think God is imaginative and he just, he enjoys diversity and just he makes something that people won't find for a really long time and then they will and think that's strange. So I, I don't have a problem with God being sort of, it's not like God just made us to eat protein tablets or something. He created a huge variety of foods that we can eat. and So God is just imaginative and colourful and so on. So I, I think in that sense, the idea that the, the universe will be full of life is possible. Um, but the Bible is also clear that God really cares about this little planet and about this particular species in a very surprising way. So there's a song in the Bible, um, in the Jewish songbook called the Psalms, Psalm 8, where um, the psalmist, he looks up into the sky and sees all these you know, the thousands of stars. And of course, without light pollution, you can see a lot more stars than we can see. He sees them all. And he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is man that you care for him? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Why should you care about me? I'm so small in this. And I think yeah, that, and that was written like 3,000 years ago, that psalm. But if it was written today... It's just the argument is magnified, isn't it? Because we know even more about the, the distance away of Alpha, Alpha Centauri in terms of light years and all this stuff. And here's these human beings in this little tiny planet. But it is clear that God really cares about humans on this little tiny planet in a disproportionate way. Because um, this is the planet that God visited and the Son of God became a human being. He didn't become a cat. Um, he didn't become a Martian. Jesus became a man. Like, Wow. And will always be a man. Jesus has his human body into eternity. And he came to this planet as a man and died on a cross to save this group of people. So there is something very surprisingly special about us, um, according to the Bible. That isn't mystifying, given how big the universe is and how big God is. But he really does care about, about this planet and this species. Mm. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, we have time for... One or two more questions. Uh, are miracles just pure coincidence, uh, extreme luck, or is there, is there a scientific explanation to it? 
So are miracles just pure coincidence, or is there a scientific explanation to it? Um, I think neither. So the miracles of the Bible are extraordinary and much more than a coincidence. So, I mean, maybe we use the word miracle in a sloppy way, like you bump into somebody, wow, it's a miracle. You know, we use it casually like that. But it's not a miracle in the way that it means in the scriptures. So things like a man who's blind from birth encounters Jesus. Jesus spits on some mud, makes a paste, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go and wash in a pool, and then the man can see. I mean, that is really extraordinary. And then it gets checked. I mean, the miracle gets properly investigated because the people are sceptical and they don't believe it. And so they interrogate the man. They interrogate his parents. Are you sure this is your son? Yeah. Are you sure he was blind? Like, yeah, for his whole life. And how can he see? Well, you know, good question, but he can. So there's these sort of brute facts or Jesus walking on water. You know, this is not possible in the Mediterranean ordinarily. You can do it in Latvia because the sea is so cold that the sea freezes. But you can't do it in, in the Middle East. Um, uh, feeding the 5,000 is, the, I think, probably for physicists, is the miracle that most messes with their head. Because, you know, Jesus has five loaves. He feeds a crowd of 5,000 people. They then collect leftovers, and they have more leftovers than they started with. <laughs> so Jesus has made extra bread, but it really gives physicists the headache to work out how you can end up with more bread atoms than you started with. them, I mean, that isn't supposed to be allowed, right? So these are, it's much more than a coincidence. These are, and there, there is not a scientific explanation. The whole point is this is not possible scientifically. Now, if you're an atheist like Richard Dawkins, you say, well, if it's not possible scientifically, then it didn't happen because science is absolute. Or you say, well, yeah, but the people it happened to also knew that it can't happen which is why they had the mass investigation of the man born blind and why everyone was astonished about the feeding of the 5,000 and so on. But they, they, they may not have been sort of geneticists, but they understood enough about science that they know that blind people can't see and that dead people can't get up and that five loaves of bread is not enough. For, they, they, they know that much science. So they've seen something that breaks the rules of science. What's going on? Well, I would just say... Um, the rules of science aren't absolute. The laws of science are just a description of the way that God up ordinarily runs the world. And God runs the world in a very consistent way. He does it the same day by day. And he, God is so orderly in his sustaining the world that, world that you can describe it using scientific laws. But that doesn't mean that God can't change the rules that he wants to. And what better explanation, what better time to do it than when he visits the earth in person? So imagine if I were to say to you, oh, you're very fortunate to have me tonight because actually I'm God. And you say, I don't think you are. No, no, I am, I am. And you say, well, prove it. Oh, no, I can't prove it. I can't do anything the rest of you can't do, but trust me, I'm God. <laughs> like, that would be implausible. So I, if Jesus is God, I expect him to do some unusual things, to do the sorts of things that only the person in charge of the way the universe works could do. Um, and so, yeah, miracles are, by definition, extraordinary and the phrase I would use is ordinarily impossible. They're not impossible because he did it, but they're ordinarily impossible. You'd have to change the way the universe worked for that to be possible. And God, of course, can change the way the universe works. Thank you. Andrew, final question. This one's slightly different to ones we've had. Did, did God create us to eat animals, or did he create us vegetarian to be vegetarian or vegans? 
bet you weren't expecting that question, but it's uh, slightly different to the others, so I thought. Oh, it's the question close to my heart. I apologise <laughs> to vegans here. I'm not a vegan. Um, uh, yeah, so this, I, I presume this is by a Christian or somebody who knows the Bible well, because you know that it, the, um, Adam and Eve were given seed-bearing plants to eat, and then later in the Bible, um, from the time of Noah, they were allowed to eat animals. So, yeah, um, um, and people make arguments on that. But I think I would say, yes, but from the time of Noah, we're allowed to eat animals. And Jesus wasn't a vegetarian, I'm sorry to upset you, but um, he was a Jewish boy. He would have eaten lambs at Passover. And now there might be good reasons for being vegetarian today, like, you know, you might think we're um, over-greedy in our use of meat and it's bad for the environment and you ought to be a good steward. And there could be good reasons like that, but I think to be an absolute... Um, to say, oh, it's wrong to eat animals. I don't think the Bible agrees. You know, we have permission to. Um, there could be reasons to cut down on meat, but I wouldn't give an absolute prohibition on it. Um, and full disclosure, I had a steak yesterday and I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. It's been great having you. Let's give Andrew a round of applause. <laughs> Andrew, thank you. We do really appreciate you coming, especially um, with laryngitis. Uh, so thank you uh, again. Folks, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's been great having you. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us uh, this evening. And I hope you'll consider coming again to one of our other events uh, this Christmas. We have lots of different Christmas events coming up, and we love to have guests come along to them. So if you're free, uh, if, you'd li- if you'd like to sing carols, uh, why not come along to one of our carol services, for example. So if you head on over to our website, you can find out all the details there as to what's happening uh, here at Christ Church Bansford uh, during uh, Christmas. You'll have noticed that there are some um, little books on your chairs. So is Christmas unbelievable? I read this book just a few days ago. It's written by Rebecca uh, McLaughlin, who's a, a really excellent writer. Um, this is not the first book of hers I've read, uh, and I really enjoyed this book. Uh, and, and it says here, four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story. So there are four chapters in, in this book. Each chapter covers a question, and here are the questions. So the first one, was Jesus even a real person? Second, can we take the Bible seriously? Third, how can you believe in a virgin birth? And finally, why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? If you're a guest here today, if you're not a churchgoer, please do uh, take this home with you. Uh, This is a gift uh, from us to you. Consider it an early Christmas present. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book. I certainly did. found it stimulating. Um, And again, I think Rebecca's an excellent writer. So you'll enjoy this. Want to grab it? 15 minutes. You can read each chapter in 15 minutes. Um, so consider this a gift from us to you. Uh, finally, if you'd like to investigate uh, Christianity further, if you'd like to think more about Christian things, in the new year we'll be running a series of sessions uh, called Exploring Jesus. And what we'll be doing, we'll be looking at John's Gospel, which is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and we'll be thinking about uh, things that Jesus taught, so who he claimed to be, and, and we'll be thinking about his miracles, uh, so we think about things like his identity and his mission, and we'd love you to come along uh, to that. So if you're interested in that, you can head on over to our web- website, christchurchbanstead.org slash Christianity, and you can sign up there.
And hey, if you do come along in the new year, you come along to one session, you think, gosh, that was so boring, um, you don't have to come back, okay? So you can come to as many or as few sessions uh, as you like, right? Folks, that's all from me. Uh, thank you again for coming, and I hope you'll enjoy the rest of your evening.